You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, M.D., Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Wit, Pablo, Nikki, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Eric the Red, the Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Annabelle, Gemma, Madeline, Patrick, and of course our newest Commodore, Trey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I don't like to repeat myself. Or rather, I know that it's annoying for a lot of you when I do. So generally I try to avoid it, but I have to remember that every episode could be somebody's first episode. Beyond that, today we're going to look at some of the first really notable moves of the golden age of piracy. With that in mind, I'd like to ask one last time, with feeling, what is the golden age of piracy? The phrase probably originated in Captain Charles Johnson's A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates. And there's a very real possibility that, when writing that phrase, Captain Johnson was joking, being facetious, you know, tongue-in-cheek, I'm trying to say he was being a smartass. A golden age, as people at the time would have understood it, almost certainly referred to the height of the Roman Empire, when culture and power and art and literature and military might, territorial expansion, all of the metrics of civilization were at their greatest extent. A few hundred dirty, drunken, anarchist, nomadic sea robbers hardly equate to that. But even so, even if he were joking, the golden age of piracy has become kind of a shorthand. For a period of time in the early modern era in which pirates represented a threat to the stability of European trade and profits and expansion. But exactly what period of time the golden age of piracy represents is something of a lingering question. The broadest possible definition includes the whole of the Age of Sail, from Francis Drake all the way to the Napoleonic era. 
Slightly more conservative definitions will begin with Henry Morgan and the Brethren of the Coast, and take that to about the 1720s. The most restrictive definitions would focus almost exclusively on the Pirate Republic at Nassau. However, most historians and writers choose the definition that we're going to use here today. That the Golden Age of Piracy begins in the early 1690s, in the wake of the crackdown on piracy in the 1680s, at the outset of the Nine Years' War, when, shockingly, large numbers of old pirates and navy men and privateers and independent merchant marines, when they abandoned their jobs and bases and their hunting grounds, to sail away, to sail east into the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea. Today, we're going to begin our look at... Today, in a very real way, marks the beginning of our look at that definition of the Golden Age of Piracy. This is Episode 188, Reunion. For the past several episodes, we've focused pretty exclusively on Massachusetts. I hope that I've imparted what an unpleasant and strict place to live that could be. But today we're going to turn our eyes south. Not to the West Indies and not to Madagascar, at least. Not yet. Instead, we're going to begin in the sunny climes and sandy beaches of colonial New York. Here in about 1690, the New York colony was still smaller than Massachusetts. The colony, the whole of New York colony, was home to only 5,000 colonists, while Boston alone held 7,000. I should... Well, colonist might not be the proper term there, actually. I should say that instead, New York was home to 5,000 non-native inhabitants. There were a huge number of slaves in New York at the time. Really, that's what New York had going for it. Boston and Providence and Philadelphia had better amenities and more money and really a much more active trading market. But the Puritans in New England and the Quakers in Pennsylvania had this annoying habit of abolitionism. New York, on the other hand, or really New Amsterdam, was the home to the first slave auction in America. And the trade in human beings had only grown in the years since that. It was... Slavery, I mean the economic backbone of the city. But the trade was limited to Englishmen. The Royal Africa Company controlled all slave trade in the English-speaking world and regulated the whole affair in America. The problem, though, is that New York was a multicultural melting pot, even back then. It was home to a huge number of Swiss and Dutch and German and Jewish and French immigrants and exiles from all over the world. Now, most of these immigrants and exiles were regular working people, laborers and weavers and fishermen and washerwomen and tavern owners, artisans, that kind of thing. But there were a few who had managed to amass sizable fortunes in the New World. Now they were cut out of the slave trade, the most lucrative trade in New York. They had to turn to other avenues to invest and increase their fortunes. Those other avenues were... Well, it's kind of funny. Here in the modern world, we see slavery as the evil that it was, and many of us see piracy as kind of a disnified, sanitized children's ride. But in 1690 or so, the slave trade was a perfectly moral and legal occupation, 
while piracy was detestable. And that is the avenue that many of these investors took. Listen to what one East India Company official said of the pirate economy in New York. He wrote in 1694, quote, It is certain that these villains frequently carry their unjust gains to New York, where they are permitted egress and regress without control, spending such coin there in the usual lavish manner of such persons. End quote. When that East India Company official said egress and regress, he's talking about coming and going. He's saying that pirates in New York had freedom of movement that they had almost nowhere else in the English world. By 1688, piracy was something of a cottage industry in New York. But it was about to explode in size and in market share, thanks in large part to two men, Frederick Phillips and Adam Baldridge. Now, we last visited New York in 1688 in the wake of the revolution against Edmund Andros. You'll recall Jacob Leisler, that middle-class German merchant who had declared himself governor. But that really hardly mattered after a few months' time. He was living in Albany in exile, leading little more than a small militia. The man who was really in charge in New York, or at least one of them, was Friedrich Fliepsen, a Dutch merchant who had anglicized his name to Frederick Phillips. The revolving door of governors who were nominally in charge of New York were essentially appointed by Frederick Phillips and his council of wealthy merchant friends. Now, we don't know how Frederick Phillips got involved with Adam Baldridge, but it was probably the slave trade. Adam Baldridge was a smuggler, and a part-time, a small-time pirate. Not an out-and-out -out scallywag, but not exactly the kind of guy that a luminary like Frederick Phillips would telegraph his relationship with. But Baldridge did have contacts down in Port Royal, as well as Charleston and Nassau and in Africa. Baldridge was what the Royal Africa Company considered an interloper. He traded slaves illegally, without royal license, and although nobody at the time knew it, or at least nobody at the time would admit to knowing it, Frederick Phillips was one of his primary customers. All that land he bought, all those churches he built, much of it was on the dime of the illegal slave trade. The problem is, though, Adam Baldridge was trying to get out of the slave trade. The arrival of Bachelor's Delight in 1688 may have had something to do with it, but I think even more was the warrant for his arrest in Port Royal, Jamaica. Not for piracy, but for murder. He'd killed somebody down there and was unlikely to return. But probably the primary reason he wanted to get out of the slave trade was the Royal Africa Company. They were not people that messed around. If you infringed on their business, they might have you arrested. But only if you were a rich and powerful pillar of the community like Frederick Phillips. For a man like Adam Baldridge, they'd just have you killed. The Royal Africa Company did have assassins on the payroll. They were trained to infiltrate and poison or strangle a target, but that wasn't for a person like Baldridge. A man like Baldridge would just be gunned down in his home or 
Maybe in the tavern he's staying at. I mean, it's not like anybody's going to stop the Royal Africa Company, and killing a man so publicly would certainly send a message. There was a host of reasons that Adam Baldridge may have wanted to get out of the slave trade, but something really dramatic seems to have changed in 1688 or 1689. We can't say for certain what it was. It involved pirates, certainly, and shady business deals and powerful men like Phillips, so it's not like Baldridge was going to write any of it down. But that question, exactly what changed there in 1688 or 89, well, that's what we're going to explore today. What we know for certain is that in 1691, Adam Baldridge sailed out of New York to establish a base on the Indian Ocean a base that would be used mostly by pirates and smugglers. It's the circumstances surrounding that decision, though, that are so interesting. If Adam Baldridge was done defying the Royal Africa Company, why would he antagonize the East India Company? Well, there's a few things to remember here. In 1688, the East India Company was powerful and large, but they weren't what we picture when we think about the East India Company. You know, a huge, private, militarily dominant corporation that... Well, all of that comes from later on, when the East India Company was in charge of India. Don't picture a plucky little startup, but there was room to maneuver without infringing on East India Company business. See, they were still busy competing with the Dutch and the French and the Portuguese in the southern Asian world. And the locals, too, who are a big part of this story. Asia was controlled by, at least the parts that weren't colonized, were controlled by a number of dynastic empires. There were those empires that were known at the time as Burma and Siam. We know them today as Myanmar and Thailand. There was the Win Empire in much of modern-day Cambodia and Laos and in most of Vietnam. And they were all important geopolitical players, but then we have the really heavy hitters. The Qing Dynasty in China should never be ignored, nor should the Mughal Empire in modern-day India. We should really call them the Mughal Sultanate, as it was a huge Islamic state, a Sunni state, that stretched from the border of Shia Persia all the way to Pakistan and Afghanistan, and in the whole of the Indian subcontinent, it was a massive political body. Not only was it massive, it was rich, which will concern us in the weeks to come, and it was powerful. So powerful, in fact, that it stood in the way of English expansion. There's, you know, there's this popular myth that the British accidentally founded their empire in Asia. It's a myth that you'll see propagated mostly by the imperialist British. We shouldn't believe it. It's a lie. You don't accidentally found an empire. The Romans would tell the same lie. You know, they're just protecting their borders here. But you can't muster and outfit and supply huge armies and navies and march them all across the globe accidentally. You know, it's like your fiancé telling you that they accidentally slept with your best friend. It's not an accident. The point is, though, the English were trying to expand their influence in the region while, at the same time, Adam Baldridge was looking to get out of the slavery game, to 
expand his business into new markets. For a man in his line of work, the Indian Ocean is a perfect place to set up shop. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, we do know that while Baldridge was still in America, he spent a ton of money outfitting his journey. It could have all been his own capital, but it's a lot more likely that he enjoyed investments from men like Frederick Phillips. He bought a huge amount of food and rum and wine and comforts, you know, like luxury goods, the kinds of things that men from the quote-unquote civilized world would have trouble finding out on the Indian Ocean. And then he bought guns. Really, really, it was mostly guns. He bought pistols and muskets and swivel guns and shot and powder and cannon, all kinds of stuff. And actually, this is a decent place to pause and note a thing or two about pirate weaponry. There's a, a sea change taking place here at the outset of the Nine Years' War. There's an ocean of difference between the armament of the buccaneers and this next generation of pirates. A tidal wave of no, I'll stop. The point is, the flintlock musket was a big deal. Especially at sea, where the flintlock firing mechanism would be better protected from water. The flintlock design had been around for a while now, but by this point it had finally become omnipresent enough to really filter down to the likes of lowly pirates. It also allowed for a greater production of pistols you're a lot less likely to burn your hand with a flintlock firing mechanism than the older matchlock designs, so you can have a smaller gun. You don't need a long gun to fire. With flintlock pistols at their disposal, pirates could begin to carry the two or three or sometimes even four pistols in their belts that they became so famous for, compared to the single-use muskets common among the buccaneers. That's a huge improvement in firepower, and of course they still had muskets with them. And if, for the sake of argument, they happened to have a 
sweet bandolier crisscrossing their chest a la Blackbeard, you could carry eight or ten. And then there are the swords. I don't want to nerd out too hard here, but it is interesting. You know, well, okay, so a saber refers to virtually any curved sword, right? Sabers were preferred by cavalrymen as well as almost every navy in the world. The cutlass was a type of saber, and the Anglo-American cutlass is a short and relatively thin, slightly curved naval sword. The design of the cutlass didn't much change between, say, the Elizabethan age and the American Civil War. But that thin, slightly curved blade isn't the image of a pirate sword, right? At least not a Halloween costume pirate sword. That blade, the the pirate sword, is shorter and a lot more broad than a traditional cutlass. But because it's so broad, you get that curved, tapered end, kind of like a bowie knife. That's how you get a sharp point on such a wide blade. I mean, you know what I'm talking about here. It's a Halloween costume pirate sword, but believe it or not, that's a real sword design. It was a mainstay of Barbary pirates. That broad, curved blade was a variation of the Muslim world's scimitar, built for naval use. The curved edge and tapered point made it ideal for slicing and piercing attacks. The broadness of the blade allowed it to be used as a sort of machete. You could cut through ropes on your ship or the brush in the jungle with it. In fact, in much of the Caribbean world today, a cutlass is their name for what we call a machete. When Adam Baldridge went on his shopping spree, he did buy quite a few English cutlasses, but the pirates with whom he was about to become so well acquainted decided in large part that they preferred the designs out of the Ottoman and Mughal empires. And this whole story, the story of the pirates of the round, the Red Sea men, really it's little more than a chapter in a centuries-long drama between the imperial powers of Europe and their colonial quest for control of the sea routes to Asia. That means control of at least enough territory for your naval bases. You need stopping points on the long and arduous trek from Europe all the way around the Cape of Good Hope and finally across the Indian Ocean to Asia. You needed to stop for wood and water and food. And you needed friendly ports in which to do so. For the English, the southern Atlantic wasn't a problem. They had a number of good stopping points. But rounding the Cape was a problem for the English. South Africa was controlled by the Dutch. That's why you have cities there today named Bloemfontein and Johannesburg. There was also the Fort de God Hope, which would become Cape Town. This was a problem for the English, at least until the Dutch stadtholder, William, became the King of England. But it was still kind of a problem. Even though the King of England was perhaps the most powerful man in the Netherlands, they were still different nations. The English in Dutch ports had to pay exorbitant fees to stop in Dutch ports. Not an ideal state of affairs, especially on a merchant voyage, a voyage intended to turn a profit. It wouldn't have been a problem if there were somewhere to stop on the eastern side of Africa. But for the English there really wasn't. North of the Dutch-controlled southern tip of Africa, the Portuguese controlled most of the port cities on the mainland. That's Portuguese Mozambique. 
North of that, you'd run into the Ethiopian Empire, who was not friendly to most of the powers of old Europe. And they had the strength to repel anyone who might come knocking. And by that point, you're on the borders of Egypt and the Ottoman Empire. Mainland Africa was essentially out. But that leaves Madagascar. And mainland Madagascar was as unfriendly as Ethiopia. The locals had been engaged in a decades-long war for control of the coast, between a bunch of different factions on the island. But this conflict was escalated by the Ottomans and the Mughals, and the Portuguese and Ethiopians, and the French. All of those powers had interests in the region, and they armed and supplied different factions on Madagascar. Now, as an American, I wouldn't know anything about arming local populations to fight factional wars in their home countries in order to promote instability for our own financial and military gain, but that's what was happening here. If Madagascar could have been claimed by anyone, it would be a huge upset in global power dynamics. So all of the empires of the world gave the Madagascar locals a ton of surplus cannons and guns, especially France. They had a ton of interest in the region. They controlled a ton of the islands surrounding Madagascar, and allowing anyone else to establish a presence there would have been dangerous. The French had ports at Mayotte to the northwest, between Madagascar and mainland Africa. At Mauritius, an island group to the southwest, they had a number of port cities. And of course, their biggest in the region was at Ile de Réunion, Reunion Island. Any of you who are familiar with this story, or really the story of piracy in general, will likely know the island of Reunion for its famous gallows, a gallows where many a pirate, some of them quite famous, met their end. Reunion Island is important. But then, of course, the French had one last outpost in the region, a tiny little port at the Ile Saint-Marie, an island just off the northeast coast of Madagascar. It was close to mainland Madagascar, close enough to see it. Maybe close enough for a strong swimmer to swim, but I wouldn't recommend it. Il Samori had a fantastic natural port, and it would have been a location that any imperial power would have desired to establish themselves. But because it was so close to Madagascar, they suffered attacks from the locals. By 1690, the French had all but abandoned Il Samori in favor of reunion. That's why Adam Baldridge was able to establish an outpost there. Now again, we don't know much about how that actually happened. The most extensive account we do have comes from Captain Johnson's General History of the Pirates, and almost certainly from a second edition and a different author. But it's a fictional account of the pirates' arrival in the Indian Ocean, the story of Captain Misson. That story likely has some validity hidden behind the fictions it presents. In the weeks to come, we'll likely return to the story of Captain James Misson from time to time. But we do have Adam Baldridge's own account of his arrival. He said, quote, July the 17th, 1690. I, Adam Baldridge, arrived at the island of St. Mary's in the ship Fortune, Richard Conyers' commander. I left the ship being minded to settle among the Negroes at St. Mary's with two men more, but the ship was cast away. End quote. According to Adam Baldridge, that ship 
in being cast away, lost half her crew, and the rest disappeared into Asia. Now, far be it from me to question the word of such a reputable man as Adam Baldridge, especially since, at the time, he was under oath to God and the king. He was on trial when he said those words. But I can't find any record of a Captain Richard Conyers on the ship Fortune in the 1680s, except, of course, for this testimony. Now, that's not to say that he wasn't a real person. I could have just failed to find it, or this might be the only written record of a Captain Richard Conyers. But if I were on trial for aiding and abetting a host of notorious and, by that point, world-famous pirates, I might just lie a little bit about who dropped me off there, and about my intentions on St. Mary's. Adam Baldridge would have us believe that he was there in a, well, yes, self-interested, but also a patriotic attempt to claim a little piece of land for England. If he were to establish a port city there on St. Mary's, he would be able to earn himself a pretty penny, but he would also be able to aid the English in the war. And to be fair to Adam Baldridge, he did that. His port at St. Mary's would welcome a number of battered and bedraggled English ships after their trip around the Cape or on their way back. Some of them, many of them even, were honest and legitimate merchant ships and a couple of navy vessels. But mostly, the vast majority of them were pirates. And that's what it was intended to be. See, between the time when Bachelor's Delight and George Rayner arrived in America back in 1688, and when Adam Baldridge arrived at St. Mary's in 1690, there was a fortuitous meeting there at Madagascar. This is the big question, the event that might give us a reason why Adam Baldridge chose to sail for St. Mary's. In 1689, Bachelor's Delight sailed away from America for Africa to arrive, finally, at Madagascar. Now, I'm not sure why they undertook that voyage. They captured no prizes of any note, nothing at least has come down to us, and then, after arriving at Madagascar, they turned around and sailed back to New York. It's almost as if they were paid to scout out Madagascar by... I don't know, a corrupt merchant there in New York with perhaps powerful connections at the highest echelons of society. When Bachelor's Delight arrived at Madagascar, they landed in St. Augustine Bay. That's at the southwestern corner of Madagascar. In fact, it's where Captain Johnson tells us that Captain Misson made landfall to establish Libertalia. I'm not ready to open the can of worms that is Libertalia. We touched on this when we talked about James Misson, but for those of you who may not be aware, Libertalia was, according to legend, an independent pirate nation. Exactly what kind of nation, we're not sure. A pirate kingdom? A pirate republic, maybe? Of course, what those ideals were tend to differ depending on who's telling you about Libertalia. Everything from a privateer base loyal to the English crown to an outright anarchist pirate commune, and everything in between. 
but we need to remember that Libertalia did not exist. But it also kind of did. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. The idea of Libertalia, even if it was never given that name by the men and women who populated it, was real. And it's an idea that we're going to examine in the weeks to come. But as far as the real story is concerned, Bachelor's Delight, there in St. Augustine's Bay, met with none other than the pirate ship Signet under Captain John Reed. Now I know I might have mentioned this before in passing, but if you could all just pretend to be super shocked by this big reveal, I'd really appreciate it. Ever since William Dampier left the Signet, back in 1686, they'd been roving all around the Indian and Pacific Oceans looking for plunder and adventure. Mostly they'd found more adventure than plunder. Signet captured enough prizes and enough booty to keep themselves fed, but not much else. Alcohol was in scant supply in Muslim ports, which meant they had a tough time keeping water on hand. Their purses and sea chests were mostly empty, and they stayed that way. And the Signet, the ship herself, was in really bad shape. Her hull was worm-eaten, she was storm-battered, her masts were cracking, really she was just falling apart. They had few friendly ports there in Asia, and they might not have careened her even once since Charles Swan had been in command. But when Signet met with Bachelor's Delight in St. Augustine Bay, they had just scored a huge win. Several weeks earlier, off the coast of Myanmar, they had captured a large Portuguese merchantman, a ship that was filled with all of the spices and riches that the Orient had to offer. Pepper and cloves and mace and nutmeg and indigo, all of it, bound for Portugal, found its way into the holds of the pirate ship Signet. And as soon as they finished loading their ship up, Signet ran. Everyone in the region was after them. The Portuguese, the Indians, anybody who wanted to either bring the pirates to justice or capture those spices for themselves, chased their less-than-pristine pirate ship. They ran, at first, into the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea was controlled on both sides by the Ottoman Empire, which wasn't without its own share of dangers, but at least that means that nobody else was going to be stupid enough to follow them up there. The Red Sea, by the way, is that body of water that separates Arabia from Africa, and it's always been a hotbed of piracy. Back when Moses parted the Red Sea, there's a reasonable chance he may have displaced a pirate. And today, of course, the Red Sea and its nearby waters in the larger ocean is home to many a Somali pirate. The Red Sea, like St. Mary's and Reunion Island, is a location we're going to need to remember. But for now, almost as soon as the pirates entered the Red Sea, they were pushed back out. They were in unfamiliar waters, but that's not really the point here. The point is that the very next place they were able to stop in their ship filled with extraordinarily valuable cargo, a ship that was currently sinking, was the Bay of St. Augustine, where, of course, they ran into Bachelor's Delight. Now, this meeting was not planned. The pirates, back in 1684, after taking a beating off the Peruvian coast, they didn't plan to meet up six years later off the coast of Africa. This meeting was happenstance, but 
it was lucky. The records of what happened here are, at the very best, spotty, but we do know that some of Signet's crew climbed aboard Bachelor's Delight to head back to New York with George Rayner, and we can assume that they carried all of their shares of that mighty Portuguese hall with them. I mean, would you leave all of your worldly wealth in the hands of a pirate, even if you yourself were a pirate? I certainly hope not. Now, what happened to the rest of the crew of the Signet is difficult to say, including John Reed. Some of them did stay there at Madagascar and would join up with Adam Baldridge later on. That would create the core of the myth of Libertalia. Some of those pirates married local women. Of course, some of the pirates got killed in fights with local men, often over their new wives. But a good number of the Signet pirates stole a ship that happened into the Bay of St. Augustine and made their way to the Ottoman Empire. That might not have been a bad move. You know, if you're a wanted man in whatever country you happen to come from, and you have the spices to buy your way to safety in the Ottoman world, they would be willing to give you a job as a privateer or Barbary pirate. But back in New York, Frederick Phillips, somehow, came into a windfall of some of the most valuable cargo on the planet. Pepper and cloves and mace and nutmeg and indigo. Now, nobody there in New York was asking too many questions, because cheap nutmeg. But it was at this point, when Frederick Phillips came into this miraculous windfall, that Adam Baldridge went on a shopping spree and prepared to depart for Madagascar. Now, I won't say for certain that the pirate colony at St. Mary's Island was funded by the haul taken by the Signet, but the coincidence is there. Beyond that, many of the pirates who returned to New York with Bachelor's Delight would have known that there was a wealth of spices waiting for whoever might come to pick it up there in St. Augustine Bay. And the pirates who were still in possession of those spices at Madagascar would be fairly familiar with the waters surrounding the island, enough that, should other pirates enter the region, they could serve as navigators or guides. But look, I don't want to make it sound like Adam Baldridge is some kind of trailblazer here. You know, he didn't come up with the idea of fencing pirate goods. It's an ancient tradition. On Jamaica, fortunes were made in that industry. But in Port Royal, there was this veneer of privateering. You could get away with it and continue to be a legitimate businessman. The pirates of the round had none of that. While Adam Baldridge is not the first to have taken up this line of work, he may be the most famous pirate fence of the whole of the Golden Age. I would maybe say that he was the most famous pirate fence ever, but I would point to a couple of other candidates. The Duke of Albemarle, for example, who would launder millions of pounds in buccaneer winnings at Jamaica. But of course he's not famous for having done so. Even more, though, there's Ching Shi in China, much later on in this story. It would be unfair and inaccurate to diminish everything she did by calling her merely a pirate fence, but that was a part of it. Still, Adam Baldridge is almost certainly the most famous pirate fence who got famous for fencing pirated goods. 
and on the 17th of July, 1690, he began to set up his little operation there on St. Mary's. Now, it's not much to talk about at first, but he was laying the groundwork for everything that is to come, for all of the pirates of the round. And thus, at least in the definition we're choosing to use today, Adam Baldridge was laying the groundwork for the golden age of piracy. Next time, we're going to look at the second name to lay the groundwork for the golden age of piracy. A pirate who at this point was merely a crewman on a privateer vessel. But next week, we're going to introduce him, as the world knew him, as Captain Kidd. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everyone who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight